This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo and this is Jesse from the Great War Channel Patreon podcast. This is the second episode and we're here in our studio in Berlin and we're sitting here and contemplating the Russian Civil War because that's uh, the main topic of our episode that we're going to film and also basically the main topic for us for history 100 years ago. So, Jesse, what did we learn studying the Russian Civil War? Well, uh, I think I still have a headache uh, from it, but uh, we learned a ton of stuff, or I I individually learned a a ton of stuff. It's something that is just not so present for us when we think about the Great War and even the aftermath I think we we always think about Russia as a bit of a, a mysterious place. There's this famous quote from Churchill, right, and which I always screw up. So there's a mystery uh, wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in an enigma or something like that. And um, it couldn't be truer of the situation with the Civil War because it's just so diverse. There's so many things that change in a short period of time. And the participants were really in often often cut off from each other. So it's not only hard for us to go back in time and figure out what's happening, but the people at the time didn't have a clear view of what's happening. So it's not like we can go back and, oh, look at all these books and documents that show exactly what's going on. When, when you're trying to sift through the material, those, the chaos and the, and the gaps in understanding that existed at the time kind of are staring you back in the face and you're struggling with those, with those as well. I think one thing that uh, stood out to me and something that we didn't get into or we're not going to get into in a lot of detail for this particular episode because, you know, we had to make, as much as it hurt me, we had to make some uh, editorial decisions here and there. But just about the, the changing loyalties, I mean, there were individuals and groups of people who kind of switched sides at different times. There was a whole people from uh, Central Asian Russia called the Bashkirs, and they switched sides in the middle of things, and this threw off um, one of the white offensives, or the two smaller groups, or smaller, I shouldn't say smaller groups, but two of the factions that we're going to discuss in a, in a future episode a little bit more and not in, not in the one that we're going to publish soon. The black anarchists in eastern Ukraine uh, and the peasants all, all over the country, but especially in the Volga region, who rose up eventually. I mean, these are all amazing things, but 
it's just uh, it's a bit of a job to to wrap your head around how much is going on with how many different actors it's so fragmented yeah for me it was a uh, reading when i read your script the first time and also did some preliminary research for example tony uh, already kind of had a gut feeling to start with the maps and the animations way ahead of time this time so that we uh, that we don't uh, have to dive into that rabbit hole uh, only after we filmed and that was a good call so we we also had to wrestle with that topic a bit and for me it's um, I think from a classification standpoint just calling it the Russian Civil War in you know not plural but in, in, in singular is as much of an understatement as calling World War One uh, just also one war even though it was technically probably several conflicts all over the world and I mean Russia is so big that you could even say that well the Russian Civil War also kind of happened all over the world because Russia also reaches in all kinds of directions and also because of the different groups that were involved with this I mean you had all these numerous ethnic groups uh, in on all sides of the conflict but just also the allied intervention I didn't have a, an idea about Uh, the scale of, the, of that. Um, I didn't have a clue about where that all happened. I, I just vaguely knew about Siberia because we talked about that on our 1918 coverage, but then there was Murmansk and then there was also Odessa. And I also always assumed it's just was mainly the main Entente powers, but then we even, you know, Poles, uh, the Czech legions we mentioned, Italians, uh, Serbs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had no idea about these, and it's so. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just such a bizarre topic because it's in our in my history classes and everything. It was never mentioned. I mean, in German history class, you have a lot of, a lot to cover, just focusing on what happens uh, domestically. But uh, I didn't have any idea about the scale of that. And some of the battles, I mean, maybe not didn't have maybe the battle of Verdun scale, but they certainly were big enough to, uh, you know, to be mentioned with some of the bigger battles uh, of World War I. And nobody knows about them, it seems a bit like it. And on the topic of the gaps in communication, how, how confused things are, you made a great point when we were chatting about this a little while ago, that if you take a modern conflict with modern technology and modern media like the Syrian civil war, how hard it was to understand what's going on, who's where, what are the factions, where are the front lines. The maps you'd see in the modern media are a bit all over the place over the past almost 10 years. Imagine the chaos on the scale of the Russian Civil War where you have this spread out over a sixth of the Earth's uh, land surface, for example. Yeah, and the sort of historical memory of the conflict is not the same, right? In, in a sense, because the Soviet Union is gone, so the official sort of state connection to the Civil War is not quite so clear. And, of course, the white forces were defeated, so there is no tradition of uh, memory or commemoration or that would lead also to a greater detailed historical interest in it. So it's kind of a, it's quite a nebulous uh, affair in some senses. But actually something I wanted to say on the topic of uh, 
using the plural of civil wars, there's uh, one of the sources that uh, we used for this episode kind of encapsulates that problem in the title because it's called, the book is called The Russian Civil Wars. And so you have the plural there, but the word Russian is also in quotation marks because, of course, it's not only, uh, it's not only about Russians uh, in terms of the ethnic group, and it's not even only about the former Russian Empire since there were, as you mentioned, you know, all these interventionist forces from outside coming in and participating in the conflict. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I haven't thought about it, but that's also certainly um, uh, a good... I mean, it, it illustrates a problem that you have in history. It's the same thing, basically, as saying, uh, as to find an end date uh, for World War I um, is, is, okay, historical classification is not, you know, finding the, the one point in history where all sides that participated shook hands and then signed a document and then it's over. Uh, because it's it's always a process, and you can trace or, or can always trace certain things back to it. And as you said, since all these kind of various groups didn't even know what the others were doing, of course they also didn't have any sort of uh, schedule or anything that they could uh, adhere to or anything. So that, I think that's a this kind of vagueness and this kind of like um, hot mess that this conflict is. <laughs> I think is probably a big part of the reason why it's not so well remembered uh, because I mean frankly I mean the Soviets certainly you know used it for their historiography and their nation building as a kind of foundational myth and everything but I mean they were very liberal with the facts on that yeah. and um, I would say that already illustrates also that it's maybe not the, the best foundational myth that you can even, or the, the, the best historical event that you can pick to build your nation state out of it because it's so, it's so hard to capture and to, so hard to define and, and everything. But that's also always the periods in history which I find most, most fascinating. It's, it's messy and it's yeah. much more, much closer to the human condition than uh, saying that there was a war and then a nation was born on this day and so on. Yeah, and line formations marched on a uh, on a battlefield and then they shot each other and then handshake in the end and then that was the the, the war and everything. So, it's um, it was certainly fascinating, and uh, that leads me to um, to another thing. We we learned quite a few interesting factoids here and there. And um, I mean, just any kind of sub, let's call it subplot of the Russian Civil War uh, is filled to the brim with interesting figures, interesting events and everything. Uh, one thing that we didn't really focus on in the episode was the Murmansk Front, where the, where the British, where the Commonwealth forces and the Americans, some of the Americans uh, primarily landed. Um, but someone who devoted uh, over a decade of research to the Murmansk Front is Damien Wright uh, and he wrote a whole book about it and we interviewed him and through the magic of audio editing you're going to hear that interview right now. Alright, so we have with us here today Damien Wright. He's the author of a book called Churchill's Secret War with Lenin, British and Commonwealth Military Intervention in the Russian Civil War from 1918 to 1920. Uh, Damien, welcome to the podcast and thanks a lot for joining us. 
why don't we jump right in and uh, why don't you tell our viewers a little bit more about uh, your background and how you came to tackle this topic. Well, uh, thank you, Jesse. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak about my book and my research. Um, the genesis of my book started when I was about 15. I purchased a uh, military history book on the history of uh, military history of Australia. And in the back of the book, it had a chronological list of all the Australian Victoria Cross recipients. Of course, the Victoria Cross is the highest award um, that the King or Queen of Great Britain can confer. And it listed the awards for the Boer War in South Africa, First World War, Second World War. And there were two seemingly anomalous awards between the First World War and the Second World War. And it said North Russia 1919. And that really uh, intrigued me. So I tried to look in and find out a little bit more about these two Australian soldiers that were awarded the Victoria Cross in North Russia in 1919. And I learned that they were actually serving in the British Army, which seemed strange. Why would Australians be serving in the British Army? And further research was quite difficult. There really wasn't much available at all about the, the campaign in North Russia and um, the Australian volunteers that served in the British Army there. And that really, um, really kind of piqued my interest. Why, why was this campaign um, so little known and why had so little been written about it? And when I was 19, 20, I really started seriously looking into the campaign, buying the few books that were available. It was the early years of the internet um, and started to build a library of whatever I could archive sources, um, original documents, letters, photographs uh, relating to the campaign. And I first put pen to paper with the intention of writing a book in 2002 is when I really seriously started taking notes. And it all culminated in my um, book, Churchill's Secret War with Lenin, uh, being published uh, in 2017. So it was at least 15 years of, um, of hard work. Yeah, and one can see that when, when you flip through, it's, it's extremely detailed, it's structured, um, it has quite a lot of things in it that uh, one wouldn't necessarily stumble across in a general history um, of the Russian Civil War, much less of the First World War. What do you think is something that uh, for our viewers who are maybe more familiar, or even for myself, who are more comfortable, more familiar with the history of uh, the First World War as a whole. Why do you think it's important that we pay a bit more attention to the intervention in Russia? Well, um, had the British and their allies been successful, 20th century and even 21st century history would have been completely different. Um, the, the British first landed troops, Royal Marines at Murmansk in March 1919 with the aim of uh, protecting Murmansk, which is year-round ice-free. It doesn't freeze up. Uh, protecting it from German troops in Finland. There was a concern that German troops in Finland would cross the border, cross the frontier into Russia in the chaos of the revolution and seize Murmansk, which um, is a year-round ice-free port. As I said, they could base U-boats there U-boats could sail into the Atlantic and sink the U.S. Army coming across on troop ships um, from the United States. 
Um, also secondary to protect allied war stores, vast quantities of war stores donated by Britain and France and other allies had been landed in Russia through the northern ports. There had been an intent to land them through the Black Sea, but of course after the failure of the Gallipoli campaign that wasn't possible. So the only port open to the Allies to land stores was Murmansk and also Archangel or Archangelsk um, on the White Sea. But Archangel freezes over at least half the year. So um, that just left Murmansk and there were huge amounts of war stores um, that the Allies could have used on the Western Front. You will recall, of course, March 1918 um, was the German von Ludenhoff's um, spring offensive. So um, the, uh, the Allies wanted to protect the, those war stores um, at Murmansk and Archangel and stop them falling into the hands either from the Germans from Finland or being pilfered and appropriated by the Bolsheviks who um, under Lenin had taken power um, in uh, Russia at the time. So of course, um, so of course, after 11th of November 1918, there was no longer the concern about the Germans in in Finland or the U-boats from Murmansk sinking U.S. troop ships. After 11th of November 1918, Britain became solely concerned with the overthrow of the Bolsheviks, who were later known as the Soviets. So. From 11th of November 1918 until July 1920, when the British formally left Russia, the British government was solely concerned with the overthrow of the Bolsheviks. Had they been successful, there would have been no Soviet Union. All the associated uh, conflicts, Hitler would never have invaded Russia in June 1941. There wouldn't have been ideological conflicts in, in China, in Korea, in, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, no Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, potentially. So history would have been extremely different. Mm -hmm. And um, what springs to mind when you say, you know, the British were, were um, concerned with overthrowing Bolshevism, not only the British, of course, uh, the French and Americans and Japanese were involved as well. Um, just how unified or not unified was the British approach? Because from what I've read, there were some differences. I mean, Churchill, whose name is in the, is in the title, um, maybe had a bit of, different, of, a, of a different uh, opinion about how far the British should go than, say, Lloyd George, for example. I don't know how much of that you uh, focused on in your research, but I thought that was an interesting topic. So Churchill, who became Secretary of War in uh, January 1919, was a huge proponent um, of expanding British military intervention in Russia to overthrow the Bolsheviks. But of course, coming when it did, just after the end of the First World War, there was no, certainly no popular support um, to expand military intervention, um, certainly not amongst the public and certainly not amongst the soldiers that were being sent there. Um, so it became a very half-hearted, um, disjointed attempt by the British. Um, from November 1918 until the British withdrawal in August, September 1919 from North Russia, they were advancing into the Russian hinterland. Where were they going? They couldn't possibly have reached Moscow. There was an intention to try and link up with the Czechoslovak legions, um, also, um, white Russian Admiral Kolchak coming from Siberia. Um, but by mid-1919, that was never going to be the case. It was 
self-evidently not going to be possible. Also, the, the allies that um, joined the British in, in many ways were unwittingly dragged into this um, ever-expanding Russian civil war. The Woodrow Wilson sent um, several thousand US troops to North Russia and also Siberia. Um, and <laughs> once, once he had sent the troops, I think he started to realize that um, it was a mistake. Um, the US were quite non-interventionist, of course, at the time, um, and reluctantly entered First World War on the side of the Allies. Um, the U.S. troops were, were sent to North Russia under British command, and the British immediately sent them into action. They were actively fighting uh, the, the Bolshevik Red Army in northern Russia, and they lost, uh, from memory, about 200 soldiers killed in action. Um, and they also had prisoners of war, U.S. prisoners of war that were held in Moscow, um, as were a number of British um, soldiers. So... The U.S. were very keen to, to kind of get out of their involvement in North Russia, and they withdrew their troops in June, July 1919. Um, the Canadian government as well was um, was quite reluctant. They originally sent a, an artillery brigade to Archangel, and um, quite interestingly, a Canadian Malamute company to Moment. So that was a company equipped with Canadian Malamute sled dogs. Um, and the Canadians withdrew all their forces in, in June 1919, around the same time as the US withdrew, um, just because Ottawa um, had no desire to be further embroiled um, in this uh, Russian civil war where um, the Allies were not really winning, the white Russians were, were not really winning, um, and it was only, over, only ever going to get worse. Um, there were also small numbers of Italian, French, Polish, Serbian troops, um, but generally quite small numbers from, from company strength, uh, Poles and Serbs, to battalion strength, uh, French and Italians. Um, they largely withdrew by the middle of 1919 as well, after which it was just the British going alone. Um, and something that is interesting is uh, just as the US, Canadians, Italians, French were withdrawing, was right at the time where the Australian and other British volunteers were arriving, the North Russia Relief Force, um, which was recruited of, uh, of volunteers who uh, signed up specifically to serve in North Russia. They got there June, July uh, 1919, and they were sent there to fight, um, and they did quite a bit of fighting. So um, Churchill advocated the use of uh, poison gas shells, and poison gas was used by the British against the Red Army in, in northern Russia. But the, the British in North Russia, the, um, the British in Siberia, in the Caspian Sea, in southern Russia, the Crimea, Kuban, and Don, they were, the nu troop numbers were too small, they were too disjointed, geographically too separated to have any significant impact on the um, on the end result of the civil war. That's interesting. I, I hadn't come across that use of uh, of chemical weapons by the British in Russia before. That's quite a that's quite a fascinating step uh, for them to have taken. Was there? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So th there is a document in the Churchill archives where Churchill's um, essentially. Um, Complaining, why why is poison gas not being used against the the Bolsheviks? They've committed every atrocity known to man. We used it against the Germans 
on the Western Front, why on earth would we not use it against the Red Army? Um, and when I say poison gas, it wasn't the same type of gas that was in use on the Western Front, the phosgene, the, the mustard gas, the highly toxic gas. Um, it was more of a crowd, suppe crowd suppressant um, tear gas that was used. Um, and there was actually quite a bit of innovation um, in the use of this um, CS gas in northern Russia. Um, and a, an Australian officer, engineer officer, who had worked as a miner, mining engineer in Australia, but was serving in the British Royal Engineers in North Russia, uh, Major Davies, his name was, he developed the first aerial dropped poison gas bombs. It was, um, he took canisters of the crowd suppressant tear gas. Um, he, um, through rudimentary manufacture numbers, uh, manufactured several hundred of these poison gas bombs, which were dropped by air by the Royal Air Force on Red Army positions in the advance of, um, of attacks. Um, and so that's the first time that I know of um, that uh, poison gas had been dropped by aerial means. And this was in uh, July, August, September 1919. And the the British were soon to apply that expertise to the revolts uh, in Iraq shortly thereafter. So that's quite an interesting, an interesting link, actually. Um, I have to say, oftentimes, when I am diving into an area that I haven't uh, worked as much in the past, one of the things that always comes to mind is, and funny as this may sound when we've been talking about uh, you know, military aspects, is the cultural side of things. Uh, what, you know, what, um, when people come into contact with each other, even if it's through fighting, there are cultural exchanges of some kind or there are observations about the other people, different uh, traditions, different dress, different food. What did you come across about the British impressions or British feelings about the local Russian peasants or Russian culture or Russian way of life? Yes, yeah, so um, most of the British troops served in northern Russia, um, which was very much an isolated uh, part of Russia, very undeveloped. Um, something that's interesting is uh, many British troops spoke some French from the years on the Western Front and when encountering white Russian officers, many had been educated in French or had served with the Russian brigades on the Western Front. So they were able to communicate in French <laughs> rather than English or Russian, which is, um, which is interesting. Um, a number of the US troops were actually either born in Russia or Russian ancestry, so could freely speak Russian and a number actually married uh, local Russian girls and took them back to the U.S. when the uh, U.S. withdrew in um, mid-1919. I think um, many of the British uh, found uh, Russian quite liberal attitudes to sexuality in northern Russia, quite confronting, um, nude bathing, both genders quite freely bathing nude together, I think the attitude to prostitution was quite liberal in northern Russia. Um, so I think it was a bit confronting for some of the, uh, the, the British troops, but of course they may have experienced similar in the rear areas in, um, in France. Um, the British did not have a very high opinion of the white Russian forces, quite low in fact, and in my book I go into that in quite some detail. 
in some cases very unfairly uh, because there were some certainly uh, very brave white Russian officers that fought with the British, including Alexander Kazakov, who was uh, Russia's highest score in World War One ace. He defected to the British in North Russia and flew with um, a British-sponsored unit called the Slavo-British Aviation Corps, um, which were equipped with um, British aircraft, British uniforms. Um, they served under the British um, Order of Battle, swore an oath to serve King George V of Great Britain. Um, and he was certainly a very brave man. And um, he uh, met his end in August 1919, when he learned that the British were going to withdraw from North Russia, he took his um, Sopwith snipe and uh, deliberately crashed it into the aerodrome in protest of the British withdrawal. So um, he's certainly an example of an extremely brave uh, white officer. But overall, the British did not have a very high opinion of um, the white Russian troops. An interesting um, aspect of the, <laughs> the cross-cultural um, interaction was many British troops bought large numbers of furs, fox furs, pelts, um, which they took with them back to, to England and sold for huge profits because, of course, they were very plentiful in North Russia, but very rare um, in Great Britain. So a little entrepreneurial uh, inspiration then in the, midst of the, in the midst of the chaos. Yeah, actually, I... I forgot to mention, but one of the one of the reasons I asked you that question is because at the beginning of the book, there's a quote from a British officer, and he sort of says that even though the the uh, enterprise failed, I'll always remember my time in Russia, and Russia cast a spell on me that will never die. And I thought that was a really kind of poetic way of of expressing that lasting link that he had, even though you know this particular episode in, in history isn't central to our memory of that, of that period, at least in, in Western Europe and, and uh, North America and Australia. Yeah, I, I included that quote at the beginning of my book um, because, as you say, it's very poetic and, and quite powerful, um, written by Brigadier Williamson, who was the British military mission, um, who was a British military mission artillery instructor to uh, white Russian General Denikin in uh, southern Russia. Um, he wrote a book called Farewell to the Don, the Don River, um, and he used that as his foreword. So I, I really wanted to include it because I certainly couldn't say anything better myself. Um, he um, suffered from typhus, which was running endemically in, in Russia at the time, and very nearly died. And he was nursed back to health by uh, a Russian woman um, who spoke no English and he spoke very little Russian. And this Russian woman saved his life, essentially. Um, he was on a train and um, he had to be taken off the train because he was going to die and this Russian woman volunteered to do her best to nurse him back to health. And um, he was only well enough to go back onto another train and was evacuated from Novorossiysk in uh, March 1920, just as the Red Army were entering the city. Um, so he certainly owed his life to a, um, a random Russian lady who he never knew her name and um, was never able to thank. Um, so there are many little um, stories like that. Um, also of British soldiers in captivity in Moscow, um, how the, the 
the Bolsheviks treated the rank and file versus the officers. The rank and file were, were treated relatively well. They had freedom to travel around the city, um, to, to go to performances, operas, to barter at the markets, um, whereas the officers were treated as criminals, of course, under Marxist-Leninist ideology. The, the officers coming from the upper classes um, were, were the criminals and the, the soldiers coming from the working classes were the hapless victims. So um, many British soldiers of the rank and file in captivity in Moscow did not have such a bad time. And certainly um, the, the, the objective was that they would uh, be returned to the UK one day and certainly speak favourably about um, about Bolshevism. So um, th there certainly wasn't um, hatred necessarily um, for the Red Army from, uh, from the British um, in certain situations. All right. Well, Damien, thanks so much for talking to us uh, about your book today. Uh, if any of our viewers out there are really keen on learning more and kind of getting into a deep dive into the British intervention in the Russian Civil War, they can do so by uh, getting their hands on your book. Maybe you can share with our viewers uh, how best to get their hands on your book. Yeah, Jesse, it's um, Churchill's Secret War with Lenin. Um, it's published by Helion in the UK. Uh, for international listeners, probably the easiest way is on Amazon. Um, but if you type the name into a search engine, it, it might come up with a um, with an easier option for you in your home country. All right. Damien, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And uh, we hope that uh, we will have the chance to connect with you again sometime. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. So this was also our very first expert interview. Um, we want to get in touch with authors and scholars for the topics that we are researching for our episodes uh, in the future and we're going to do have more interviews hopefully and one thing that we want to do for the Patreons is that they can ask questions to these experts when time permits. This interview with Damien was uh, basically uh, agreed upon uh, in, in an hour on Facebook today so he didn't really have time to, uh, to get any, in any questions but in the future I promise we will do that. Um, that being said, something that we already did last month and that what we will continue to do is that we get Patreon questions for our format uh, Beyond the Great War. The first episode of that uh, was already published a few weeks ago. Um, and some of the questions we get on Patreon we will also answer in the po podcast. And we will start with that new tradition right now. I'm going to just look up the question now. All right, so the question that we're going to talk about today is by Christopher Scarpino. Can you discuss the Fry Corps in more detail? Was the Spartacus revolt really that serious a challenge to the German government? So it's two questions, but they are related. All right, well, maybe, uh, maybe we'll tackle the Spartacus question first. It's something that, um, it's a bit of a question of uh, your perception, how you want to weigh the different aspects of the uprising because on paper no it's not really a significant threat to the security I, on paper no it's not really a serious threat to the state or to the government because you only had a couple of hundred not so organized 
revolutionaries occupying a couple of buildings in Berlin with no real plan, no, no real chance at, at taking power, so to speak. On the other hand, uh, the Spartacus in Berlin weren't the only revolutionaries in Germany. Uh, there were further and larger outbreaks a couple of months later, but these were also limited and also put down by troops loyal to the government. So militarily, in terms of seizing power, there's not a, a real imminent threat. On the other hand, if you look at it in the bigger context of the Russian Revolution happening not so far away, and the stated goal of the Bolsheviks being to spread this revolution and support uh, other revolutionaries in other countries, even though they weren't really in a position to do that yet. And especially in Germany. To that in Germany. Yes, Germany was the, was the primary target uh, because of the ideology and the conditions, material and economic conditions. You need a, a big industrial working class, the proletariat, and Germany is the most industrialized, most advanced industrialized country in Europe at the time. So this really made the government fear the consequences of any uh, Bolshevik revolution, even one that wasn't actually equipped to threaten it directly. Because remember, the, the October Revolution in, in uh, Russia was not a massive affair. The Bolsheviks seizing power, although of course their power base and the situation was different than in, than in Germany, the Bolsheviks seizing power in, in very narrow terms was a limited thing. There were, there were not a lot of people killed and there were not a lot of people involved when they seized the key points in, first in St. Petersburg and then in Moscow there was a little bit more fighting for several days. And that example is what really drove the German government to, uh, in many ways, react the way that they did, in addition to some other factors that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, and I think to, to add to that, uh, I mean, certainly that kind, of, uh, that kind of uprising, however limited it may be, and however actual threat there was to overthrow the government, the very young government at that point, uh, was that it also, of course, presented an opportunity to show that to show force and through that force to show the people that this new government was serious and for example could enact the monopoly on violence right so um, and i think that's um, something that is certainly i think uh, part of it if if let, let's put it that way if the young government wouldn't have been able to put down even that small rebellion it would have completely eroded the small power base they had. The legitimacy the, of the state, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at that point. So, so they needed to, I, th I think in their eyes especially, they needed to be quite uh, harsh in terms of like the crackdown on this kind of yeah. thing. One, one thing I forgot to mention um, that, let's say, made it much less likely that the Spartacus rebellion would, would become a real threat is the popular support. The elections in January 1919 in Germany, so they happened uh, shortly after the uprising, a few weeks after, the independent Social Democrats who were associated and kind of participated in the uprising got very little support. Uh, from memory, I think they got six or seven percent support. So if you don't have that base in, in the population to support you, 
it's probably not going to happen. No. Yeah, I saw some. Uh, actually, saw a picture of a demonstration in the archives, which uh, uh, the one sign that you could clearly read was, um, "We oppose violence from the left and from the right." Um, so there was probably a certain centrist sentiment in the society there as well, in regards to just get a grip on yourself, get an end to that violence. We had four and a half years of that now, and uh, we just want food. Yeah, for example, yeah, I mean, that's something we also will talk about in future episodes is the British blockade that was still going on, uh, for example, and that didn't make the situation, that complicated and tense situation, uh, any easier, yeah. Um, so that was the second part of the question. The first part of the question was that we should talk a bit more of the, about the Freikorps. Um, I read an, an interesting article about that on our very cherished uh, digital encyclopedia of the First World War. And found a few things particularly interesting that we didn't have time to um, flash out when we talked about the Freikorps. Um, I think the most interesting thing is to distinguish the Freikorps basically in three main groups um, in regards to how they were actually created. So the first thing is, the first group which was I think the largest was basically, I mean you had this kind of after the armistice of 1918, when Germany already agreed to be demobilized and to abandon, well, not abandon, but to kind of step down in terms of like their uh, their armaments and the number of soldiers they have, they had this kind of transition period from what would later become from, from the from the Kaiser's army to what would later become the Reichswehr, and in that regards, you. You had the, a lot of uh, Freikorps that were basically army units that were in this kind of limbo in between. So the war was over and it was lost. Uh, there was chaos and I think a lot of these uh, troops kind of mobilized themselves in, in a way or were just kind of still kept in power de facto to have some sort of uh, military and some sort of um, force that, for example, you could use for domestic uh, things like the Spartacist uprising. Second group were basically um, officers from the Imperial Army who took matters into their own, own hand. That's where uh, I think it becomes more ideologically motivated, where these officers basically rounded up men that they served before and without having any kind of official or inofficial, um, uh, how you say, uh, order to, to keep mobilized, just mobilize themselves and or remobilize themselves, remobilize their old units. Um, these, this kind of happened, for example, I think uh, at the German-Polish border, uh, where it wasn't just also a domestic matter, but uh, it, um, you had the whole situation with new emerging nations and the struggles at the borders and where of course military is, is more what you need rather than a police force. And the third group were uh, people like what we talked about also in regards to the Spartacist uprising where um, these kind of local militias who were basically men who just wanted to impose some sort of order on this chaotic situation. Um, for example, as we talked about in the last episode, the Wilmersdorf militia in the Wilmersdorf borough of Berlin that were the ones that found the flat where Liebknecht and Luxembourg were hiding. 
So these are, these are kind of the groups and the first one I mentioned was certainly the largest one. And then um, in regards to the Freikorps you also need to, uh, they, they went through multiple phases. So the first and most important phase was the crisis phase, uh, as you could call it, where where they were basically needed, where you had a lot of them and where they were, took part in um, active fighting, where they took part in military actions and policing actions like suppressing revolts, um, not just in Germany but also in the Baltic states, also in border regions. Um, once that was over, uh, the military and the government, the German one, uh, basically realized, okay, we have a lot of people under arms here who are just semi-officially soldiers and uh, I mean maybe you could talk a bit about the ideology just now um, or after I'm done with this train of thought but who were basically a potential threat uh, or became so powerful that they would be a potential threat to the government so they were demobilized so then you have this demobilization phase after the crisis phase and then the third phase which we will come to much later is basically when they became less of a military force but a political force and uh, still wore the name Freikorps in their, for their organizations but were more just radical political factions that for example would take part in the Kaputsch um, or later on in actual party affiliations like with the uh, emerging National Socialist German Workers' Party, that's how it's yes, called in English. That's how it's called in English, right? Um, so yeah, but that's that's much uh, further down the road. But I, I found it interesting to basically see these three kind of groups and these three phases. Uh, I think that's a very helpful way to distinguish the kind of Freikorps um, people that were there already. And maybe you, you you learned a bit more about the ideologies as well, right? I did, yeah. In When I was doing the research for the first episode uh, about the Spartacus uprising, the sources I had, which are all modern uh, publications by, by qualified historians, they downplayed the ideological factor. And, and we mentioned that in the episode, right? They said there's, there's not really a coherent ideology that would encompass all these different Freikorps groupings and the people involved in them. It was more about, you know, sort of desperately hanging on to the comradeship that they had in the army that gave them meaning. It was more about action without really thinking it through in the face of, uh, you know, a chaotic situation. But after that episode was published, um, a friend of mine who's a political science professor made me aware that there is a counter-argument to that. Uh, and basically it goes like this. It says that the Freikorps is sort of the incubator for later Nazi ideologies. And you can see, or this is how the argument goes for those who, uh, for those who adhere to it, you can see in some of these things the seeds of uh, later key planks of um, fascist Nazi ideology, like the idea of the idea of camaraderie, can easily kind of morph into the idea of a Schicksalsgemeinschaft, right? So a community of people with a common destiny, um, or taking action just for action's sake, uh, 
as a principle um, and glorifying this violent action just because it is a violent action is also uh, part of fascist thinking, part of fascist uh, ideology. So I thought it was quite interesting to see that, um, that there is a, another argument that makes that link uh, more directly than what, the, what our previous re research had shown as well. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Florian Rutner in Prague for bringing that other side of the debate to our attention. I also uh, talked to a historian about that and just to uh, go full circle here to, in regards to the Russian Civil War uh, uh, and, and calling back the brutalization theory that we talked about before is that uh, particularly Freikorps members or German soldiers and officers who took part in the early stages of the Russian Civil War in 1918 already after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk but before the armistice saw this kind of like uh, complete disorder um, and Hemte Gewalt, I think it's called in German, basically like violence that is completely new to these kind of officers. And you have yet pogroms, irregular warfare, uh, lynch mob kind of situations, food riots, and this kind of situation that uh, this was also an incubator for these kind of people that then would form around an ideology that would be very much opposed to Bolshevism. And from there on, step by step, we uh, builds up this kind of uh, what you just said, uh, what would later become a f properly formed fascist ideology. I mean, that's also an argument I heard uh, from a historian I talked with. So maybe that's something that we can explore in a future video as well, because I think it's pretty fascinating mm -hmm. to see how these, how this violence uh, influences certain individuals and how they carry these, uh, this experience home or to other places than just Russia. So um, I hope that answers Christopher's questions uh, sufficiently. If you have any more questions, uh, just post them in the comments to this post where I publish the podcast, but I also once a month, I will make a post on Patreon just asking for your questions. Some of them we will answer on the podcast. Some of them we will answer uh, at Beyond the Great War. Some of the questions, answers, we will also indirectly answer and incorporate into our episodes later on. Um, and have some mercy with us that we also get a lot of questions, so we sadly cannot answer all of them, but we will certainly try and we will read all of them. In regards to production updates from the show, I don't think uh, much has changed um, from, last, from our last episode. Still in our old set, uh, we are setting our eyes on maybe having a new set and a new studio and proper office sometime in summer, hopefully. But for now, we are quite happy actually with a new set. Uh, and you know, just that we at certain points uh, included a few more items that make it a bit more period appropriate. We have uh, John Jellico now uh, here. My personal contribution to the set. Thank you very much. We have a new newspaper uh, because in the first episode we didn't have anything on your desk. Now we ha now we have a new, new newspaper which is, as of recording, a hundred years old, I think. Uh, the date here is Monday, the tenth of March, nineteen nineteen. All right, and we are recording this on the 9th of March, two thousand nineteen. So that's actually uh, cool to have. It's an original one on the desk, and yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you for everybody who supports us on Patreon. I hope you like this kind of uh, 
podcast update that we do once a month. I hope you learned a bit more. I hope you liked the interview with Damien Wright. Uh, I hope you liked the show. I hope you like the Russian Civil War. Uh, I hope you like candy. Yeah. Who doesn't like candy? <laughs> and uh, yeah, just uh, if you have any feedback for the podcast, just also leave it in the comments. And we will see you out there in YouTube land. Till next time.